First up, if you haven't already listened to the last episode, it's part one and this is part two. That will set up the background information on power profiling and the methods available, so go listen to that first. In this episode, we get practical, so you're using the most up-to-date information available when you do your power profiling. Big thanks to this episode's sponsor, InfoCrank Power Meters. Our mission at the Cycling Performance Club podcast is to provide the best, most insightful and most accurate cycling performance information to you and the greater cycling community. InfoCrank shares this mission with us. Proven to be the world's most accurate power meter and utilized by numerous Olympic and world champions, InfoCrank provides cyclists with a level of precision and peace of mind that is unsurpassed in the industry. InfoCrank is offering our listeners an exclusive 20% discount off the InfoCrank Road or the InfoCrank Track power meters, and we have just received news that InfoCrank is extending this offer until the end of the month, the 30th of September 2022. So definitely check out the link in the description and use discount code PERFORMANCE20, that's PERFORMANCE20, to get your upgrade into the most accurate power meter on the market welcome to the cycling performance club podcast the podcast where scientists pro cyclists and cutting-edge coaches discuss topics in training performance science and all things cycling the show is co-hosted by me cyrus monk a professional cyclist and cycling coach me dr jason boynton a sports scientist and cycling coach and then there's me a professional cycling coach. Today, Power Profiling Part 2, Advancements in Power Profiling of Cyclists and Best Practice. And this is the best practice part that covers how to power profile, including getting right into the details on how to choose the best method for your situation and where power profiling is headed in the near future. When we talk about doing actually doing power profiling. The first question then is how do you choose a model that's right for yourself or an athlete? And I will say it's easy, but not simple. Mostly because as you will hear in a moment, there are no software options available that lay out all of these models. You have to build your own dashboard in Excel. I guess after that, it might be easy, especially in the way Peter describes how he would choose a model. From a statistical point of view, it's quite clear. And if you ask a statistician or, or an IT specialist how they select models in, in other areas, it's always the model producing the lowest standard error within a model parameter, which is then selected. And this has, has also been suggested with all kind of power duration models you have. So what could be an, an approach, and this has also been done by us experimentally, you use all models which are available, and in Excel, you get then from uh, linear models, you get quite good standard error, error squares, and so on. So you get so-called goodness of fit data. And then you look where the goodness of fit in each model is the best. And it's this one you choose. As simple as that. And it could be that for rider A, another model is, is better fitting their data than for rider B. But it's based on the same approach. It's the model producing the lowest standard error of estimates. And I think that's at the moment the recommendation to go, I would say. Yeah. And I think one thing that is important to point out here, because that might raise some red flags for people when you're like, wait, you're choosing the model to fit the data. 
But this is a practical world. This isn't you're not publishing scientific papers, right? So you're trying to predict what the athlete can do with durations that you haven't tested yet. So if you want that outcome, then you should pick the model that fits that data the best. Exactly. Assuming that it's accurate data. Yeah. Yeah. And and at this stage, what we definitely want to generalize is, for example, I can tell you why there are differences, because it's the ratio between W prime to C B. And we know this ratio is quite different between athletes, depending on the rider type, but also depending on kind of competition experience and so on. So, for example, if you compare a Marcel Kittel from a sprinter perspective mm-hmm. and you compare a classic time trialist like uh, Bipo Ghana, of course, these two cannot have the same model parameters or the same model use because the emphasis on, on Ghana is the long end, and uh, although he's quite good on short end as well, but, but for Kittle, it's the short end. It's just an explanation. So I think it's even a strong positive thing that you're looking individually at the rider characteristics mm-hmm. um, and how his relationship of the different uh, parameter estimates from his power profile are looking at. And based on this, you choose the best model fitting to this kind of unique uh, individual so I think that's a win, you know, because it, it's not about comparing apples with apples all the time. I mean, from a statistical point, yes, but you have the same statistical approach. You're using the lowest producing error model for all. So that's that's the unification. So that's the general approach. But then the outcome is, of course, different depending on the rider type, uh, rider role, competition experience, mm-hmm. physical capacity, whatever. Yep. For an age grouper, mm-hmm. it's quite simple <laughs> um, because we don't have big variation in age groupers. So this is more a topic for really highly trained athletes choosing the right model. In terms of age group trialists, it's easy. It's always the work time model because they are limited on the short end compared to the long end and their W prime to CB is always more to the side of the CB. Mm-hmm. So the work time is always better. You know, So it's, it's quite simple when you have a quite, let's say, a sample where where you don't have big power output variation, which is basically nailing uh, power output maintenance. But the problem is when you need a very good short end, but also long end, then it's getting tricky. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, you want to make sure that all your predictions make sense for this athlete. So this is why at the moment we have this approach, and I, I'm quite happy with it because it really helps you fine-tuning the modeling approach. Yeah, yeah. Um, so some other things that I have down to consider when you're selecting your model is obviously the type of sport within cycling they're doing, whether mountain biking or time trialing, climber, road criterium racer, all of these things are going to yeah. uh, play into that. Correct. Um, then you would also want to consider the mains that this person will be racing and training in. Uh, so track probably don't doesn't have to... Uh, have a good model for the moderate exercise intensity demand, right? Yeah. That's something to consider there. The other thing I was thinking about too is for Northern Hemisphere athletes, my athletes would be training indoors. It doesn't make a lot of sense to have them have to do a PMAX in that time of the year to anchor their power duration curve in WKO5 to me. So if I can just do critical power that should be fine i think because you you've defined the domains that you really need and because the other thing is is like doing a p max on a trainer is going to be going to be lower than what you can do it outside 
And so you just know that this value, this Pmax is going to have so much error in it that it's like, if I'm anchoring to that point, how does that mess up the rest of the model? So it's almost for me coming in and, and, you know, looking at the figure and being like, oh, well, I'll just do a two parameter linear uh, time duration model. Yeah. You just use that model for that period of time because it's just not conceivable to get them outside to do in the snow to do a Pmax effort. And it's, that's not going to happen well enough to represent reality on a trainer. So there's another thing, a factor or a reason to yeah. pick different models. Correct. Um, is factors like that. Correct. So getting into an, another kind of interesting topic within the power duration curve stuff is you're going to get data from indoors in the laboratory versus data that's going to be outside in field testing. And that gets into like big conversations around that were in the discussions in your retrospective studies that you did yeah. with U23 riders. Yeah. So why don't you give us a synopsis of things that we should consider when we're combining the laboratory data and the field data. I think this was discussed a bit with Jason Bartram's research as well, but yeah, let's hear your take on it. Yeah, it was, uh, with this paper, I was too fast because there was a very good paper of Elliot Lipsky and uh, Dario Sanders coming out and other colleagues. I think it came out in March in, in, the, in the IGSPP. And what they have assessed is the differences in performance assessment between indoor and outdoor conditions in professional cyclists, you know. And what they concluded is that indoor and outdoor efforts cannot be used interchangeably. Mm-hmm. And they found a tendency the results in outdoor testing revealed higher power outputs than indoor testing. Mm-hmm. And they, they have been speculating about what, what kind of the mechanisms are, but I could confirm exactly the same. And I think most of the thing is that the power output delivery on an ergometer when going all out is due to the braking resistance is not so stochastic as you would like to have it. And it seems like when we do an effort, even outdoors, when you really look at the second by second power, it's not a plain effort. It's very stochastic. So they could average 400 watts by the end of a two-minute effort, but it could be that, you know, they start with 500 and they go down to 350, but still averaging 400 watts and it's a new PB. I think outdoor conditions give the athlete a better opportunity to deploy their, their W prime compared to what's, yeah, what's left. And I think this is why when you test with a highly trained caliber uh, athlete, except you do it on a loady and with a very strict laboratory testing protocol for a partitioner perspective, do it outdoors. That's my take on it. Now here's a warning. It's about to get nerdy. Well, well, at least it's going to get into advanced power profiling. But if this isn't for you, stick with us because there is an app recommendation from Peter that will make this whole process simpler and we get into a lot of valuable and practical recommendations on the best practices when conducting power profiling. Let's get into what, like the coaches that are out there. Let's talk about like the, the higher end or nerdier cyclists. They want to know like, how am I doing this? So it's going to have a big overlap with figuring out critical power. Very similar approach. So yeah, how do we do this advanced power profiling? Let's talk about the testing and all that, like the approach with the athletes. You send out the athlete uh, on a day where he is rested, he's motivated, and you are really up to doing something uh, maximum, you know, 
don't do it pre-fatigue, don't do it not motivated, um, and don't do it if you don't have a purpose for doing it. So that's I think that's that's the number one criteria, what needs to be decided before. And if you want to do it, make sure you do it on a safe road, uphill road, low traffic, where no construction work is going on. Because I was doing it one time with the riders, and in the middle of the climb, because I was not checking the climb before there was construction work going on, it was not affecting the three-minute effort, but it was affecting the 12-minute effort. And they were so mad at me because they had to cancel their effort in the middle at eight minutes. And all like they were going so mad and we had to redo it all again the next day. And it was like, yeah, it was my fault. So, yeah, be aware of where you're doing it and also do it in um, kind of a yeah, safe environment. Don't do it on a main street with, with huge traffic when the athletes go all out and they might collapse at the end of, of the effort or you don't know. But make sure that this kind of uh, preparations are done. Do a warm-up, which is kind um, of a race warm-up with some pre-efforts. For example, I always do a quite kind of a, a standardized warm-up, 30 minutes with three times one minute at, at, at kind of a threshold intensity to open up. This is the so-called priming, which definitely helps to speed up VO2 kinetics and so on to just getting more used to kind of the, the severe intensity effort. Then do the effort randomly or let the athlete pick he, who uh, which effort he wants to, to do first. It's interesting. Uh, note everyone wants to do the longest first and then the shortest, and I would rather either randomize it or let the athlete pick to yeah, just to because he needs to produce the effort. So I would always uh, let the athlete pick from a practical aspe- uh, perspective. So he is doing the effort. You're not trying to influence him on the effort. Um, the the cool thing is what I would like to to do is do the effort blinded. It has even a higher quality of doing things especially with experienced one, don't get blinded by power output recordings. Just put in maybe cadence is a quite good pacing metric. And of course, elapsed time. I think that's that's the two fields where, where you had units should be dialed in. Don't get biased by any power output or heart rate. I wouldn't do this on, on a testing day. Um, this is how we do it. Yeah, then he's coming down from his effort down to the start of the climb. Uh, drinking something and then make sure he's doing active recovery on a flat road, 30 minutes uh, to 40 minutes, really easy. Some so partial time standing, partial time active recovery, and then going, let him in into the, the second effort of the day. I always try to do the shorter and longer efforts on one day, then look at the data. And if the data is good enough, I will let it be by two efforts. If he underpaced or overpaced, overpaced is, is, is not possible. But if he underpaced, uh, overpaced is possible because if he's going too hard at the beginning and then he underpaced, then I will add a third one on the next day. But this is very rare. It's only happening for people who have never done CP testing. But there is a big learning effect and be aware of the learning effect. Normally, people know how to time swap, not everyone. But there is definitely a learning effect between first time CP testing and second time CP testing. So mind the learning effect. It's the same with the Wingate test. You also have a learning effect there. This is my favorite when I'm coaching people and they say, oh, can you make me do a better 20-minute test? And I can say, yeah, I can make you do a better 20-minute test in one week. Because you just give them three 20-minute tests in the same week and they'll they'll improve because it's just the, the learning, the testing. Like, yeah, it's not going to make them a better cyclist, but they get really good at doing 20-minute tests. It's surprising how little pacing feels on even elite athletes have when you ask them to go on a predetermined duration to go all out. 
And then, you know, you either have two or three prediction trials uh, from a practical perspective, although research recommends four to five. In my experience, if athletes are very used to all-out testing, you, you get away with two already. And this was also confirmed by some work with Medicordi, but he didn't find any difference in kind of the parameter estimates between two and three efforts. The problem is that the degrees of freedom are the problem again. So the error, of course, within the two trial is way higher. It almost goes to infinity than in the three. So you have absolute, because it always is a perfect fit. If you have two data points, you connect them, it's always one. So it doesn't add anything to the context of your goodness of fit. With this technique, you would not be able to assess different models based on the goodness of fit because it's always one. It's always a perfect fit. So in this context, you would add a third one. So either 3, 7, 12 or 2, 5, 12. So the one in the middle is something what you what you like to use. What's also possible, uh, and this is something what we have been experienced with, with the track cyclist, the track cyclist producing very high short power output efforts from all their training trials and all their training efforts. So it's not a problem that we get, we don't get enough data points for short duration maximum effort. So that, that's good. What we just add then is a longer effort on top to make the model accurate. And this is also a way of getting, if you get in a new racing effort, for example, for a longer end, but you want to update the model because you know the shorter end also will be better, then just let him do a two-minute one mm-hmm. just to you know catch up with the model. So this can be a nice yep. ongoing approach when you have a problem yep. with updating your model. You don't need to redo all the testing. Just yep. do the testing where you are missing some kind of information. Yep. And this can be picked on a single effort basis. Yeah, context is good on that. Like if you're looking at their training load and it's been going up for the past two, three months, like what do you think the chances are that the 12 minute has decreased, right? <laughs> so probably not, <laughs> probably not that, not a high chance there. So the, you can get her out around like the test. You have to test every six weeks. Do you, what does the training load say? What is, what are the other things that are in the model that it would be? Did he get a good 10 minute power not too long ago? Well, then if that's good, then this 12 minute power is probably okay too. Yeah, I think it's it's not up to then do exact this, this fixed duration approach. Just see where the improvements are made yep. and pick mm-hmm. those to update mm-hmm. your power profile. I think that's fair as long as you respect the duration yep. which you are in. Um, and also, you know, I, I, I don't, I'm not a fan of over-testing uh, standardized tests. It's a nightmare for them, especially when uh, on top of the game they are racing a lot and so on. So athletes don't like this so i get away with two standardized tests per year nothing more is required so i do one in the preseason, close before racing starts to really know when they start racing i'm able to really characterize their power profile and one after the first race half so when they go back retrain rebuild and before they enter the second half of the season for racing I like to throw in another power profile test there. What I don't do, I only did for research testing at the very last end of the season in September, mm. October, no. and, and they fucking hate it. No. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. Nothing worse. <laughs> I, I will say that you can get athletes in there that you know, like they didn't get to, especially through COVID and that, they didn't get to do like good races or anything like that at the end of the season or they're new. And you're like, all right, 
why don't we just go out and hammer it and see how awesome you are right now? And some people are on board with that. They're like, yeah, I want to see how good I am right now. But if you've gone up, come out of a full full season of racing, yeah, putting a 20 minute test at the end, like, what's the point? Yeah. And this is what, you know, what was so special in 2020 because um, I couldn't use that season at all for my, for my PhD work because the season was all over the place. Mm-hmm. Uh, we expected a normal season to start with and we did all the kind of pre-season preps and then COVID came and no racing until August. But it was interesting what it changed to the athletes kind of peak performance condition. And it was really delayed, of course, because we also uh, reduced the training load, uh, did some kind of transitioning, especially when there was home confinement. And it affected, of course, uh, late season performance because it was almost no late season for there because they started racing in August. So the the numbers that they were producing in September and October were impressive. They never, ever produced that numbers either before or in 2021. So if a season goes the normal way, what you see is very good performances in first half of the season, good up to mid-season and really problematic in late season where, where they just, you know, they're just preparing for the races. They do what they need to do in the races, but beside the races, they don't want to do or invest much. At least this this impression, what we got, uh, it's just like even in the training load, it's very hard to emphasize a big block of training volume in the late season. It's more like, yeah, you keep balancing, you keep maintaining the, the shape, you keep maintaining the volume, but you definitely not build it up. That was the kind of uh, implications I had. I'd back this up from speaking with pros and being in the pro peloton. If you look at the races in Mm -hmm. late September and October, uh, I'm sure you probably see from your analysis if you've looked at those, Peter, and yeah, yeah. yeah, if we looked at some of Toon's stuff, often the the level is a bit lower. And from speaking to the riders, they're just basically doing some maintenance sessions in between races at that time of year. Yeah, yeah, and exactly. mentally fatigued just from a season of travel, a season of riding. So, yeah, that's just something you notice in a normal season. All right, a little bit of a training tangent there. <laughs> so we'll bring it bring it back into um, how to derive the parameters for your power duration model. One thing I would add real quick with the two data point method of determining critical power. I don't have as much confidence in that method as you do, but I don't have as much time on the ground doing that. But right now, if I was going to do that, probably want to do it with a met cart on the two minute. I'm just laying out the conditions where I would be most comfortable with that. Then it gets into that conversation of the indoor versus outdoor. But at least with if I'm doing the two minute effort and I can watch the VO2 hit. Absolutely. Now, I think uh, in, in order to get confidence in the kind of test, but also in the kind of how it is delivered, it's also how I started, you know. It's just like I did it I did it repeatedly and I saw always the same scenario and I said, okay, why not? Why always booking a lab, doing the effort, going in? But I totally understand if you're critical about it and say, okay, I want to, but I want to see if, if he hits a plateau, if he hits his VO2 max. It's like, is it actually happening? Go do it. I'm not telling you something, oh, you don't need to because I have that experience and trust me. No, go do it. But from my point of view, it's just like, okay, what's the bang for the buck? Go out, do it. Let's get into two data points. Let's update the model. Let's look at the parameters. Do they make sense compared to the previous one or not? It's like, okay, this is not a scientific evaluation of doing it, but I'm just talking here purely from a coaching perspective. 
But if you would always yeah, yeah trade offs. You know, if you would always yeah. yeah, of course you have to do make trade offs because I think if you would always do it like in the perfect study, you just like ending up doing it over and over and over because the perfect study does not exist. So the context is key here, and uh, I think. Again, what we should really care is, does it inform the athlete and what does it tell the athlete? And I think that's also something where where we should be aware of with all this kind of testing and so on. Make sure you don't forget to report this to the athletes accordingly, because the mm-hmm. next time they have to redo the test again, the motivation of for them to do the test mm-hmm. is highly depending on what feedback they get. And if they never get feedback of anything you are measuring or anything you are reporting, they they just losing the faith mm-hmm. and the belief in it that it's informing their kind of training process, whatever. So make sure the first thing I do is whenever I ask mm-hmm. athletes to get data from is to create a report, at yep. least to get them some updated training zones, some just very descriptive manners of what's the power to weight, what's their actual weight, what's their just, you know, just very basic information that they can have kind of a, oh, okay, this is what I'm getting from. And then the motivation is very high. I never had anyone complaining about too much testing or so, but I always thought, okay, what's a win-win for both? I needed the data to, to do my research and, and also, you know, to, to do a deep in-depth analysis. But the athletes also deserve the, the right, I think, also to, yeah, to get an update about what's adding this to him. And I think that's, that's something what I, I just mentioned here. Yeah, yeah. All right, so now we have the data, and we are confident that it is looking correctly. Now, I came up with an Excel spreadsheet for a critical power calculator, and I think it took me like 10 minutes, 10, 20 minutes. Didn't take that long. I'm going to beat you to the punchline here. I'm going to explain what I did. I'm going to try to explain it to the listeners so they have can have that take home, and then you can critique what I, you can tell me if it sucks or not. No, yeah, <laughs> fine. So the the Excel spreadsheet that... I created here for the listeners. It was six columns. I just put down one as like the label column for duration. Then I had another column for minutes, another column for seconds, another column for time, another column that was the inverse of time or or one divided by time, and then one for the watts. So if you had a two minute and 30 second all out effort that was looking really well, then you put in two and 30, take two times 60 plus 30. Then you get your seconds, then you take one divided by those seconds, and then you would have your watts, and then you would have your columns. So you'd have like three efforts or four efforts. And then from that, I just found a cell that I wrote out a formula for, or not even formula, just did the expression for the uh, intercept and just put the intercept in there. And then you put the formula in for the intercept and then just put the range of your time inverse and then the range for your watts and bam, it just calculates out your critical power because your critical power is basically the intercept of that line. I didn't do anything else fancy with that, but I would imagine. And and what did you, and the W prime? So the W prime, I didn't get to that. I thought about that today. I was like, oh, I should probably calculate W prime off of that. Yeah, because that's the main emphasis for the big win and the big advantage is that you get two parameters, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. Like I said, I just wanted to figure out what critical power was. And then I started playing around with like the way to get that I was getting around, like having to have the test durations just so I could play with this was I was bringing up the normalized residual curve chart 
that you have in WKO. And I was looking at the points where you could see the where that those spikes or uh, peaks were. Yeah. And then I would put those yeah. durations in. The one that was closest to two minutes, I put in. The one that was closest to fifteen. The one and the one that was somewhere in the middle. And then I would throw that in there yeah. and try to get the, the number. So that was a quick and dirty way to do it. Obviously, if you do specific test durations and all that kind of stuff, it's gonna be better. But um, yeah, that's. How I did, I don't, I don't know if that's pretty close to what you did. Obviously, you're probably putting, I bet your Excel sheet is way prettier than mine, but yeah. No, no, this is spot on. I mean, you can even do a, a, a graphical solution, you know, where you just plot the, the inverse of time and power. So the inverse of time is on, on the x-axis and the power is on the y-axis and you just add a, a trend line. Yep, I did that, yep. And then you just read from the trend line for the slope k or M, I think it's called in US. Yep. The intercept in the inverse yep. uh, is your critical power, and the slope is your W prime in joule. Mm -hmm. So you would mm -hmm. need to divide this by a thousand to get the kilojoule. The other way is another linear model, which is easy mm -hmm. to do, is just convert power output to work in, in terms of multiplying the power output times mm -hmm. the corresponding mm -hmm. time. So you get yep. work. And then you can plot the work again on the y-axis and the time this on the x-axis so you get the work time model and then you do the same but this is just vice versa here is the slope is your critical power and the w prime the y-intercept and then you would what you would like to do is to compare the goodness of fit between these two in terms mm -hmm. of the r, r square and then you can see okay how far off is basically uh the linear inverse versus the work time mm. and i would just to make it very simple i would pick this one with the higher r square so the higher coefficient of determination because what what is it telling us it's telling us the explained variance of your kind of data and the higher the, the explained variance in percent 99 versus 97 with 99 you can explain obviously more with 97 percent so this is, let's say, that that would be the, the cheapest way of, of goodness of fit measure. And, and that's the way to do it, you know. There's no other need or hidden kind of clue. Another very advanced and fast way is going to the Shiny app of Felipe Mattioni, the CP, the Critical Power app, because this is also uh, allowing to plot the hyperbolic model. It's an R code developed as a Shiny app. You put in the durations, you put in the efforts, you can add up to six, seven efforts. Um, you can mm -hmm. add heart rate data as well, I think, or I'm not sure, but, but at least power output data and also speed data for runners. You can then look at all the required models and you can then also pick the model producing the lowest error. So that's also quite a nice way of doing it online. Nice, nice, nice. Um, so where do you think the future direction for power profiling and maybe this technique lies for the future directions i hope that um, coaches just get a better understanding of the, the benefits of this concept and also how it can facilitate the training process i would really like having an open conversation about also the experiences from coaches working with this concept i think there should be a more like uh, yeah exchange what are the limiters what what needs to be more explored but in general make it more yeah spread the world with with knowledge and and spread the world with with these techniques uh, the cycling world and i think yeah future directions as mentioned previously is definitely something modeling the 
the, the power output uh, predictions in, in the moderate domain in, in conjunction with fatigue resistance, the decline in power output for, for professional groups, but also the other influencing factors uh, which affect long duration power output delivery. I think that would be the research directions I would point to. And in general, I think, yeah, there is a lot of software out. Um, if they would be more open also to incorporate those kind of calculations from training software that you can also use. I mean, in today's plan, they offer this option already where you can uh, use this kind of concept to derive your training zones. I think that would be quite handy for most coaches due to the time-consuming aspect. Yeah, I think that in the world of what power profile can add to cycling, that would be already a lot. But I think at this point, it should also be mentioned that it's just still a very niche from the whole cycling performance. And I think we should also acknowledge that it is an, a practical tool. It's definitely worth doing it. But I think it also has its limitation and, and, and therefore everyone should do the reading he requires, listening to kind of this podcast to, to get a bit educated. And I, I would be open for answering questions and so on. But I'm also learning on the more and more uh, I'm working it from not only research, but the most you are learning is from practical aspects, doing it with a variety of athletes, a variety of sports discipline. Only this way you also get to know its limitations. So, yeah, I think that's a wrap up. So there you go. I'm going to wrap up this episode and review with the practical recommendations Peter and his fellow authors recommend. Things that have been missed in the episode, but give you a complete picture and will enable you to go out and complete a best practice power profile. The following points are from the review and based on the current literature and the author's experience. So point one, to derive the parameters to model a power duration curve, a formal test protocol should include one sprint effort, and this is approximately 10 to 15 seconds, and at least three maximum efforts between 2 and 15 minutes. These efforts can be completed in a single testing session, though it is recommended to divide field testing into two sessions over two consecutive days. The order of the efforts should preferably be randomized for scientific research or follow the cyclist's or the coach's individual preference in applied settings. Inter-trial recovery between efforts should be set to a minimum of 30 minutes of active recovery with a rating of less than two when you're talking about perceived exertion. Critical power and W prime should be derived by the non-linear two-parameter CP model, while P max should be referred to the one-second peak power during that 10 to 15-second sprint effort. Coaches can choose the best modeling approach based on the exercise intensity domains that are important to the race analysis and training prescription in a given discipline. Power meters should be verified for accurate and reliable measurement and a zero offset or recalibration according to the manufacturer's recommendations is recommended. The authors do not recommend using single effort field tests. This is eight minutes or 20 minute time trials to derive the FTP estimate because it lacks physiological background and only represents a single point on the power duration curve. Nor do they recommend the use of the three-minute all-out test as this may lead to an overestimation of the power duration relationship in the severe exercise intensity domain. 
And the final point here is standardized lab and field testing should be conducted in line with performance analysis from training and racing to increase the practical utility of performance prediction and training related consequences. Any formal testing should consider the environment and topographical condition in which the power profile information is to be applied in. Therefore, the duration of the effort, gradient, inter-trial recovery, rider type specialization, climbers versus flat specialists, for example, and race demands, climb versus time trial, should be replicated as best as possible. Dr. Peter Leo is the training scientist of cycling. Peter, thank you for joining us and sharing your work and enthusiasm. Good luck in your new role. And we look forward to welcoming you back to the show to discuss more of your ideas. Speaking of Peter's ideas, there are a lot of Peter's interview that didn't make it into these two episodes. So we're going to go and put those together as a bonus episode for members, which is only one of the benefits of being a member of the Cycling Performance Club, because there is a members-only feed that has full interviews and bonus episodes like the one I'm talking about. And as a reminder, the Cycling Performance Club podcast is a listener-supported podcast, so we would be stoked if you supported us by becoming a member of the Cycling Performance Club and providing a monthly contribution with your backing we can continue our mission to deliver the best cycling performance knowledge and practical advice to you and the greater cycling community for a better sport. Click on the link in the show notes to support us monthly, or if you prefer to make a one-off donation for now, you can buy us a coffee or three, also by clicking the link in the description. Don't forget, Jason, Cyrus and I offer coaching and consulting services for cyclists and teams. Links to our websites can be found in the show notes. And don't forget, InfoCrank is offering an exclusive 20% discount on the InfoCrank Road and InfoCrank Track power meters for our listeners. See the link in the description and use the discount code PERFORMANCE20 PERFORMANCE20 to get your upgrade to the most accurate power meter on the market. And with that, thanks for listening.